<clears throat> well, <clears throat> you'll have to excuse my voice. It's, uh, it's a little rough this morning. Um, we're in the third week of our study of First Peter. Um, in the first week, Pastor Ron covered the vast territory of the first two verses of chapter one. And uh, last week, Desmond boldly uh, increased that by 50% and covered three verses. Uh, so you can see the progress we're making here. The pace is increasing, the momentum is building. Um, today I actually have seven verses that I'm going to try to cover, verses 6 through 12. And then I think next week Will has nine verses. Um, but uh, anyway, just to let you know, it'll be uh, about seven verses on average that we'll be covering uh, in this class. So uh, we'll see how we do with that today. Today, as I said, we'll be covering verses 6 through 12. But I want to take a few minutes to remind you of where we've been so far. Um, before we do that, let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 1 through 12 together. Now, I think on your sheet, it starts at verse 6, doesn't it? So um, I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 5, and let me have somebody else read 6 through 12. Des, thank you. <clears throat> it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, Okay, thank you, brother. <clears throat> so um, we see again here the people of God, the new covenant believers to whom this letter was written are referred to as elect exiles. Other translations have aliens, strangers, temporary residents, or pilgrims. 
And uh, this is who we are in this world as those who belong to Christ and who belong to the world to come. Put simply, we're out of place here. We, we really don't fit in. This world is alienated from God and in rebellion against him. And we, by his mercy and grace, have been redeemed and reconciled to him. And we seek to obey and please him. Heaven is where our citizenship is. Heaven is where our inheritance is. Heaven is where our king is. That is the homeland that we long for. We are aliens, strangers, pilgrims, and exiles here. And Peter tells us that the people of God, the exiles here, have been chosen or elect by God the Father, and sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. So we see here that the salvation of God's people is a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Spirit together in perfect unity accomplishing this work. <clears throat> and the goal of this work in his elect exiles is our obedience. We are elect, it says in verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ. The goal of this salvation is our conformity to his will. Likeness to Christ. Obedience to his word. Or as it says in verse 15 and 16, we are to be holy in all of our conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And as verse 14 in this chapter says, we are to pursue this holiness, this non-conformity to the world, but conformity to Christ. We're to pursue this as obedient children. <clears throat> but in 1 Peter, this uh, command that we see in verse 13 and following, and all the other imperatives, come only after he explains the great hope to which we have been called and the means through which God is leading and keeping his people uh, to take hold of that hope. So in verses 3 to 5, Peter tells us first how we have come to share in this hope. He says, we have been born again. We were without spiritual life, without God, and without hope in the world. And he has caused us to be born again. It was wholly his doing, not ours. According to his great mercy, not our merit. And having been given this new life, being made God's children, we have a living hope. And this new life and living hope are rooted and grounded in, as it says here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is because Jesus is alive that we are made alive in the Spirit. <clears throat> and because we are united to Him by His Spirit, we have a living hope that we have a share in His inheritance in glory, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is being kept, being preserved for us in heaven. So our living hope is this inheritance in Christ, which he has merited and we receive by mercy. 
And as it is kept and preserved un in undiminished glory in heaven for us, Peter tells us also that we are being kept or guarded by God's power to enter into that inheritance, the fullness of our salvation, which will be revealed. And you get a sense of the imminence uh, here with the phrase, he says, it is ready to be revealed in the last day at the coming of Christ when all God's people will enter into the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. So this has always been the great hope of the church, or as Paul says in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus. But while we talk about the substance of our hope, we can't miss in verse 5 the role of faith as a means by which God keeps and guards us and brings us to enter into our inheritance. But we're going to talk more about that in a minute when we get to verse 7. <clears throat> so that briefly is our review and our introduction. Um, and it's important that we see what Paul or Peter uh, writes in verses 3 to 5 because they are necessary to understand the rest of what we'll cover today. In fact, we don't get two words into verse 6 before we have to examine what came before. So let's look at what it says there in verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice. So in what? What is the this referring to? Well, I believe that it is the whole of what has been laid out in verses 3 to 5. From his great mercy to our consummate salvation and inheritance. There is nothing in this that is not from him and nothing for which we should not rejoice. So we rejoice that God has shown us great mercy. We rejoice that he has caused us to be born again. We rejoice that we have a living hope that is rooted in Jesus' resurrection. We rejoice that we share fully in his inheritance which is incorruptible in his unshakable kingdom. We rejoice that God's omnipotent power is keeping us so that we will not fail to enter in and receive it. We rejoice that this salvation is ready to be revealed. It is in this that we rejoice. We could even go back further and say we rejoice in our election by the Father in the redeeming work of Christ, our covenant head, and in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Really, how could we understand this? How, <clears throat> could be we, how could we be recipients of all this and not rejoice? That's a rhetorical question. Now think about this question, which is not rhetorical. How could we be recipients of all of this and not rejoice. Why was Peter convinced that his readers needed to hear this? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the apostle so that we and every other generation of Christians would hear it? Because of the next 
I'm sorry? That's right. Yeah, he, he, he goes on right after that to explain it. <clears throat> it is necessary that we hear this because everything in this fallen world tempts us to forget this. We're tempted to put our hope in fleeting and futile things of this world, those things that so easily entice us. Or we're tempted to let the glorious hope that we've been given diminish in our estimation so that we don't pursue our goal with the focus and fervency that we should. Or because even as sojourners and exiles, we are tempted to live like those of this world and succumb to the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Or because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and we need to resist him, standing firm in the faith. Or because in a fallen and hostile world, we suffer in many different ways, including opposition and persecution from those who are at enmity with God and God's people. Or simply because our faith is weak, and needs to be strengthened by the word. So we need to be reminded of who we are, of whose we are, and of what's been done for us, what we've been given, what we share in, and what we're looking forward to, and who is keeping us for that day. <clears throat> so we see in verse 6 that Peter turns quickly from the glories that are ours in Christ which are cause for great rejoicing, than to talk about the grievous trials that these believers were enduring. And from this point on, we begin to see what a prominent theme that suffering is in this letter. In fact, the word suffering appears 17 times in 1 Peter, speaking both of the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of Christians. <clears throat> But in verse 6 it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. <clears throat> Peter says that they've been grieved by various trials. These believers were undergoing some form of persecution, which was a significant trial to them. Uh, this persecution at this point had not yet reached the point of systematic statewide or state-sponsored uh, violence and depression, but it was nevertheless pervasive and significant. Uh, it came in various forms and it came because of the faith and they were in need of encouragement and strengthening in the faith, both for their present joy and endurance through it and also in preparation for the greater trials that were looming on the horizon and that were soon to come. So in order to provide this encouragement, Peter reminds them of the glorious status that they had as the people of God. And he exhorts them to live their lives together in light of that reality, especially 
in the midst of trials. <clears throat> and while these trials are grievous and are a cause for great sorrow, he encourages them to rejoice because even trials and suffering are given to them by God and are for their good. So he says that they can rejoice in hope even in trials. First of all, because trials and suffering are temporary. As you see, he says, though now for a little while you have been grieved. <clears throat> because of the hope that we have in Christ, we can look beyond our trials, no matter how severe they are or how long they last. We know that Jesus himself, it says in Hebrews 12, endured the cross, despising the shame. And why was that? For the joy set before him. And so too, by his grace, we can rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering. But this phrase, for a little while, probably has reference not to the duration of a particular trial, but to the whole of life as sojourners and exiles. Ours is a life of perseverance in the midst of suffering. And in times of suffering, although those times can seem long, um, compared to the in eternal inheritance that awaits us, it really is only a little while. The Apostle Paul refers to the afflictions of this life, and he knew a lot about affliction, uh, but he calls them light and momentary because he saw them in light of eternal glory. <clears throat> if this uh, is hard for you to see, then the uh, teaching of this letter is, is even more important because it's critical that we, that we understand this. <clears throat> and we all need to be reminded of it. At the very conclusion of this letter, Peter comes back to this point to encourage them once again with a benediction in chapter 5, verse 10, where he says... <clears throat> And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. <clears throat> but now back in um, verse 6 of chapter 1, Peter also says that these trials are necessary. The if here is not conditional as though to say that they may not be necessary, but rather it, it's providential that if God determines that they are necessary, then they will come exactly as he determines and for the purpose that he determines. Our trials and our suffering are according to God's sovereign will. Um, if you will, look at First uh, Peter Four, verse 19. <clears throat> we see here our trials are according to God's will. Where he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. So God has deemed it necessary for us to undergo various trials. And these trials bring grieving. But even while we are grieving in the midst of trials, we are simultaneously rejoicing. Grieving does not overcome rejoicing, and rejoicing does not eliminate grieving. But God has determined that we will be sustained in the one while enduring the other. In uh, 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. These go together in God's economy. As, <clears throat> as the trials that bring our suffering are often the very things that God is using to draw us away from the futile things of this world to a firm hope in the salvation that is ready to be revealed. And this gets us then to the purpose of God <clears throat> and while we can why we can rejoice, I'm sorry, while we can rejoice in our trials and suffering, <clears throat> and this is because they are used by God to strengthen our faith. So not only can we just look past them as something that is temporary, but they're actually tools that God uses, means that God uses to strengthen our faith. So they serve us in that way. Look uh, at verse 7. <clears throat> um, it says, uh, again, it is necessary that we be grieved in various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Peter had said in verse 5 that we are being guarded by God's power through faith. And here we're told that God brings these trials for the testing of our faith. So we see that this is one means by which he keeps us through the testing and purifying of our faith through trials of various kinds. God is sovereign over our trials, and his purpose is to strengthen the faith of those who are being tested. The outcome of this testing for believers is that their faith is purified, their hope is strengthened, and their love for Christ is deepened, and they are brought into their inheritance. And in these verses here, he compares faith to gold. Gold is a precious metal of great value in the world. The purity of gold is increased as the fire burns out the impurities. But ultimately, as valuable as gold is, it is perishable, as we see here. And as he also says in verse 18, but our faith is much more valuable to God than gold is. And it is his object to purify it, to purge it of its impurities of doubt, of self-reliance, and of worldly hopes. So the trials that he brings are to purify that faith and to demonstrate its genuineness. And genuine faith will always persevere. It doesn't mean that it won't ever 
fail in some cases. But even when genuine faith is shown to be weak in trial, it is being purified. It continues to pursue the hope held out in the gospel. And that's why even when we feel weak and as failures, we should never give up. Even when we fail, we must get up and go to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And there we receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And we must also remember that there is an enemy whose object in our testing is to bring about apostasy. According to 1 Peter 5.8, he is prowling, looking for someone to devour, and we must resist him. So the ultimate result of this testing is that our faith, it says here, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice in our trials because these trials actually add to and bring about our glory. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our trials and afflictions are preparing for us, or other translations say producing for us, or achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. It's not just that we we persevere through them, but they they are actively working to produce in us a greater glory in the end. A glory which our afflictions and suffering can't even begin to be compared to. And Peter says then that through these trials, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we might think at first that this is referring to praise and glory and honor given to Jesus at his return. But this is actually speaking about the praise, glory, and honor that will come to us at the coming of Jesus. Does that sound a little blasphemous? <laughs> You're a little uncomfortable with that? Um, if so, that, that's probably good. That, but, um, but this is really an amazing, wonderful truth. But I want to be quick to say that this is only because of our union with him. Certainly all glory, praise, and honor is due to the Lord Jesus. And at his return, his work of salvation will be seen to be fully vindicated by all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But because his people are in covenantal union with Christ as the covenant head of the new humanity. Scripture speaks in many places of his saints being vindicated by God before all creation as well. And this is a very relevant fact 
for these Christians that Peter was writing to who were suffering persecution and public shame and humiliation because they bore the name of Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, their justification and righteousness will be seen. And their faith and hope will be vindicated before all. And praise, glory, and honor are all said to be given to the saints of God. So think of how amazing this is for those who are hated in this world because they belong to Christ. They will be honored in his presence before all men. You may want to take down a couple of these passages, but Romans 2.29, 1 Corinthians 4.5, and a number of other passages uh, speak of the saints receiving our praise from God in exactly those terms. Romans 2.29 says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And in 1 Corinthians 4.5 it says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation or praise from God. Likewise, many passages speak of us sharing in his glory. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Hebrews 2.10, and Romans 8.17 all emphasize this. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Romans 8.17 brings together these ideas that we see in 1 Peter 1, being God's children, being his heirs, suffering with Christ and sharing his glory. It says, If and if children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then also in 1 Peter 5, 4, he tells us, And when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the unfading crown. Glory of our inheritance spoken of in chapter 1 verse 4. And it is for all of God's people. And so also honor is said to be given to the saints of God in several places. Including Romans 2.10. Where it says, but 
glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then also in 1 Peter 2, 7, <clears throat> he says, and so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. <clears throat> so yes, praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ, but because of his great mercy, his redeemed saints are given praise and honor and glory from our merciful Savior when he comes to judge the world and to be glorified in his saints. So when our Savior is revealed in all of his glory, we will share in that glory. As he received honor and glory from the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, so also we will receive glory, praise, and honor when he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. <clears throat> Peter says our faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Several commentators note that the use of the term revelation, uh, which is an unveiling, really demonstrates that Jesus is present with his people now. But he is invisible, and hence he must come and be revealed to them. And so this isn't speaking of Jesus being distant and then coming from, from a far distance to us, but that he's present with us, but in the end will be revealed to all. <clears throat> his presence with us is the source of our endurance and joy in our suffering. It's also the cause for our perseverance in the faith, our steadfast hope, and our increasing love as we await his appearing in glory. So knowing this, we can joyfully endure the shameful treatment by those who hate our Lord. We can suffer dishonor, injustice, and humiliation, knowing that in his mercy, the Lord of the universe bestows upon us praise and glory and honor, all of which ultimately magnifies his own glory to the praise of his glorious grace. <clears throat> so in all this, we see that <clears throat> what we might think would be an obstacle to joy, trials, grief, suffering, actually turns out to be a means by which our joy is increased and that our hope is magnified and our faith is purified. And as we look at uh, now at verses 8 and 9, we see that there is more that we might think would be a hindrance to our joyful hope and steadfast faith that would lessen our ability to fix our hope fully on the magnificent grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Peter mentions two things that the recipients of this letter and that we lack as we wait the revelation of Jesus Christ. One, we have not seen him. And then secondly, we do not now see him. We are awaiting one 
whom we have never seen. But while this may seem like an obstacle, it is not. Of course, Peter, writing this letter, had seen him, and he references it in here. Um, he saw him suffer. He saw him raised in glory. And you get a sense of his amazement at this when he recounts his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in 2 Peter 1.18, saying, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And while Peter had that experience and we lack it, uh, and what amazing experience it must have been, we also remember that Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Not seeing is not a hindrance to faith. The faith we possess is a gift from God as much as is the life that we have been given and every other blessing of the gospel. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is not necessary for us to see him, to believe in him. It's not necessary for us to see him, to love him. Even though we long for his appearing, <clears throat> Paul tells us uh, in Romans 5.5 5, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So though we don't see him, we love him and believe in him and we rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So while he said in verse 6 that we rejoice in all that he had outlined in verses 3 to 5, though we are being grieved in many trials, he says here that we rejoice with inexpressible joy in the obtaining of the outcome of our faith, even though the process involves suffering trials for the testing of our faith. In verse 5, we are looking for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And here in verse 8, we are obtaining through God's sanctifying processes that salvation as our faith is purified and as our love for Christ is increased. And the outcome of our faith is the attainment of that hope, that living hope for which we have been born again. Trials come to test and purify that precious faith and so these trials are part of the process of obtaining that salvation hope. And as trials and sufferings draw us closer to our Savior in faith, we rejoice in Him and in the hope of our imperishable inheritance. And because of what these trials are producing, we rejoice even in these difficult means of obtaining the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. <clears throat> so, 
as our faith is being purified through trials, this increases our love and our longing for Christ and our longing for our eternal reward in him. Because of this, our hope will be fixed, will be set on the glorious inheritance that awaits us. We don't turn then to the right or to the left being distracted by temporal concerns or passing desires. We won't put our hope in transient perishing things. We won't allow trials or hardships to discourage us or societal rejection or public shame to cause us to compromise or to deny the faith. Rather, we will look to that full salvation and public vindication to come when the saints of God will share in the praise and glory and honor that comes from God at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when we will see him as he is, whom thus far we have only beheld by faith. <clears throat> Before we move to the next section, there's a, there's a hymn uh, based on the writings of uh, Samuel Rutherford, which I think captures the reality of the church's hope uh, and of so much of this text in uh, a very clear and wonderful way. And I want to read that. It's uh, the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It says, The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark had been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty, without a veil, is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy, mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. <clears throat> the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. This really sums up in so many ways what our great hoped for inheritance involves. But now, turning quickly to verses 10 to 12, <clears throat> we see that this salvation that he has purchased, the inheritance that he has promised, is the salvation that was prophesied long before. Verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. <clears throat> the salvation that believers experience now, having been born again, and which will be consummated in the future when Christ returns, was also prophesied in the past by the Old Covenant prophets. Believers in Christ, those who share in the New Covenant, represent the fulfillment of their prophecy. As such, we enjoy the great privilege of living in the days when the history of salvation is being fulfilled. And what that prophetic work centered on and its fulfillment came through was, to use the phrase in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. <clears throat> this phrase not only sums up the entirety of the work of Christ, his humiliation and his exaltation, but also marks the dividing point in history. At the incarnation, we have the beginnings of Christ's humiliation and sufferings culminating in his death and burial. <clears throat> At his resurrection and then his ascension, we see the exaltation of Christ, the God-man. And in this, we see the commencement of the new creation as he is the firstborn from the dead and has become the life-giving spirit according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22. And so now all those who are in him, sharing in his resurrection life in the spirit, are a new creation, born again to a living hope. In the exaltation of Christ also is the inauguration of his kingdom. And all of this constitutes the subsequent glories which will reach their consummation at his return, the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. <clears throat> this is the dividing line of history because since Christ suffered and then entered his glory, the time of fulfillment of all the prophetic promises and covenant hopes has begun. Peter writes to his readers that the Old Testament prophets, quote, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The believers of that day, the recipients of this letter, and all New Covenant believers are the privileged recipients of the grace that they prophesied about. These prophets, it says, searched intently and inquired carefully into that salvation. These two verbs here interpreted together indicate how ardently the prophets investigated the salvation about which they prophesied. But they were not able to discover the person or the time that they were being inspired to write about. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. It says it was revealed to them that they were serving you and all those who have had these things announced to us through those who preach the good news to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice he says in verse 11, <clears throat> it was the Spirit of Christ in them who predicted these things 
through the prophets. And then in verse 12 it says, it was the Spirit sent from heaven by Christ who spoke through those who preached the good news of its fulfillment. And of course, it is the same Spirit by whom we have been born again into this living hope through the risen and reigning and returning Jesus Christ. These are things into which angels long to look. The idea here in this phrase is that the angels lean in and stoop down to peer closely to get a glimpse of the glory of this salvation. <clears throat> this highlights the great privilege of Peter's readers, including us. <clears throat> and I want to uh, just quote uh, at some length Tom Schreiner and what he says about this. <clears throat> he says, Peter's main point throughout is that believers in Jesus Christ are incredibly blessed to live in the time when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. A similar lesson was communicated to the apostles by Jesus himself when he said, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Believers also stand in contrast to the angels, for they also long to glance at and reflect upon these truths. The point is that angels reflect with delight on God's saving actions. More specifically, angels do not experience the gospel in the same way that human being, as human beings since they are not the recipients of redemption. Again, the privilege of enjoying and anticipating salvation comes to the forefront. Old Testament prophets saw it from afar, and angels also marvel when gazing upon what God has done in Christ, while the Petrine readers actually, presently, experience it. Which then brings us back I think to verse 6 and our opening phrase in this you greatly rejoice. Well that is um, what I have prepared. Are there any Thoughts, any questions, comments? No? Okay. <clears throat> well, let's go ahead and pray. Our God of grace, Lord, we are amazed at all that you have done for us in Christ. And we know that we, though we have received it and though we experience it, in many ways only barely glimpse it, barely grasp it ourselves. 
<clears throat> we look for and long for and desire the consummation of our salvation. But Father, we don't long for it as we ought, and we pray that you would strengthen that desire. We're thankful for the gifts we have by the Spirit through Christ now. But Father, we reflect so little on them and enjoy them and lean upon them so little. We ask that you forgive us, Father, for treating lightly the glory of your grace. And we ask that you awaken us more to this glory, that we would find in Christ everything that our souls desire and need that we would be satisfied with nothing less, that we would pursue him and his kingdom and his righteousness with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you would, through the testing and trying of our faith, bring us to share more deeply in his likeness as we share in his suffering that we would be better equipped in this world to be your witnesses and that we would be made more fit for your glorious kingdom where we will share in that glory and now as we Prepare to go in for worship, Lord. We pray that you would be with us and that you would cause all that we do to be honoring to you, that you would be pleased with the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts. And, uh, Father, that you would fill us with joy in your presence. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.
Yes. It does. Yeah. You see where Will went? Oh, there it is. <laughs> it's locked, though. Oh, <laughs> oh, darling. Come on. I'll cut all this.